you would turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, we find James yet again confronting sin in the church. And he is specific in what he confronts and yet practical in how he approaches it. He first addresses the symptoms of sin. The next, he unpacks the sin itself and goes into the source of that sin. And then finally, he commands the solution to that sin. I meant to give you an outline today, print it out, and I apologize. I, I didn't. Um, but we're going to look at the, the symptoms and the source and the solution. The symptoms, source, and solution. Now, though he addresses a specific set of circumstances, specific symptoms, specific sin of what's going on in the church in this, in this passage, the principles that he applies, we can apply to ourselves as we deal with not only maybe the specific sin and these specific circumstances that he addresses, but other sins and other circumstances that we encounter in our lives together as a church and as individuals as well. I'm going to read James chapter 4, 1 through 10, and that's going to be our text today. It says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Verse 1, James begins with a rhetorical question. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He does so, one, to force thought, to force introspection. But more than that, he does it to expose the sin. Expose, really, the symptoms of the sin that he sees in the church. The quarrels and the conflicts. And now, he's not just addressing disagreements in the body. It's okay to have disagreements. We have disagreements. And it's not always sin to disagree. For instance, some of us in here have differing views when it comes to eschatology, when it comes 
to end times. Right? Uh, for example, some might take a, a concerning rapture, might take a, a, a pre-tribulational view. Others might take a, 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 a mid-tribulational view, maybe a post-tribulation. And some, and, and we have brothers and sisters, I don't know about in here, but we have brothers and sisters that we fellowship that actually don't take a view of the rapture at all. Uh, uh, they have an amillennial or a, a post-millennial view that it's not going to happen like we believe it's going to happen, Okay. And we can have those disagreements. I'm not going to get into all that today, but I'm just saying as an example, we can have those disagreements and we can do so in a way that edifies one another and is not sin. So having a disagreement is not necessarily the quarreling and the fighting that James is addressing here. Now, the quarreling and the fighting is also not defending and contending for the faith. Now, we are commanded to proclaim and defend truth, Uh, If you would turn with me to Jude. Just a few chapters over from James right before Revelation. In verse 3 and 4, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We are, in fact, commanded to proclaim truth. We're commanded to defend the truth. And we can do that in a way that's not sinful. We can do that in a way that doesn't fall under the scope of what James is addressing here and quarreling and fighting. Now, of course, we know that we can take any disagreement, right? We can even take a love for the truth and a desire to contend and, and defend the truth. We can even take that to stand, uh, a sinful uh, um, point, okay? Again, that's not what James is addressing here, right? He's not addressing confrontation, right? He's not saying that there's a problem with confronting certain issues within the church. In fact, James is confronting an issue here, right? So this quarreling and this fighting, it's not that there's a problem confronting sin in the church, right? James is confronting sin in the church. In fact, uh, pastors and believers are commanded to confront sin. Paul commands Timothy to do so in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4. So turn back with me to 2 Timothy Chapter 4 and verse 2. He says to Timothy, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. So quarrel, conflicts, flights, fights is not this confrontation of sin. In fact, even I know Paul was addressing Timothy, a uh, Timothy pastor there, but even believers in Matthew chapter 18, right? We're, we're commanded that if our brother sins, right, to go to them, show them their sin, that they might be brought to repentance. Again, that's not what James is addressing here. The words used for quarrel and fighting give us the imagery and the idea of war and battle complete discord and complete disunity and disharmony, if that's a word 
between the, it is, the believers. That's what he is addressing. In the church, James is seeing this utter battling and warring between brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's calling them out on it. Now, these are symptoms. And this was the first point. These are symptoms. Now, it's sin. So we want to understand that, okay? This, this quarreling and this fighting, right? They are symptoms of a greater sin, if you will. But they themselves are sin, Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 20. Paul says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. Paul was afraid that there would be disunity in the church. And that is not what God desires for the church, for his children. Also Philippians. Chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. He commands, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. It is God's clear desire for us as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be unified. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't confront sin when there's sin. It doesn't mean that we, it, it's, it's wrong to have any certain level of disagreement. Okay? But again, James is addressing this battling, this warring, this disunity among believers. And it is a manifestation of greater sin, if you will, that's occurring in the lives of these individuals involved in these particular circumstances. He says back in James chapter 4, this is what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, he says here, he says, you lust in verse 2, and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, I don't believe that James has in mind physical murder. I don't think he's actually saying some of you in this congregation, in this body that I'm addressing, you've actually killed your brother with whom you are quarreling. I don't believe that's what he's addressing. Possible? Yes. Okay. Don't think that's what he's addressing. I think what he's addressing is an issue of the heart. Think back to James chapter two, right? When he commanded the church, commanded us, right? We're commanded to what? To show no partiality, right? There was this, this favoring of the haves, this disdain for the have nots, right? James chapter three, the issue of the tongue. 
talks about blessing the Lord with your tongue, and then yet you turn right around and you curse your brother with it. Again, he's clearly addressing an issue of the heart and that it's being manifested as an outward hate and anger or a hostility toward others. And we know that we don't have to physically murder someone to murder someone in the eyes of God, right? Matthew 5. Chapter 5, verse 21 and 22 of Matthew. This is Jesus speaking, and he says here, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You're good for nothing, so you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. See, when we hate our brother and our sisters, when we hate others, it's murder. Not physical murder, but in the eyes of God, before him, that hatred is viewed and judged as though we physically murdered. When we sin in our anger, whether it be internally, we can do that and never show any outward signs of it or whether we do it externally which was which is what was occurring here in this church externally they were quarreling they were fighting they were battling they were warring they were murdering each other in the eyes of god now i want you to think before we move on to the next point where james goes into the source of this i do want you to think just briefly of king david and As we go through this text today, I'm going to try, Lord willing, to use King David as an example, an Old Testament example of this, the symptoms, the source, and the the solution, okay? And I do believe that it works. Um, As we go through James, we'll we'll, we'll be able to see how King David had these um, this snowballing, if you will, sin in his life that manifested itself in these symptoms, which actually did lead to murder as he essentially murdered Uriah, right? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't throw the blow that killed Uriah, but David orchestrated it as such. So, so that James is not addressing physical murder, I don't believe, in the church. We know that it is more than possible and plausible. And we understand that hatred and anger can lead to that point. And David is a prime example of that. So this process that James is going through, it is important where he addresses the symptoms, which, as we've discussed, is sin. And then now in verse, again, verse 2 through verses 4, I believe. I'm sorry, verses 6. He's going to address the source of these symptoms, right? And as he does so, he's going to unpack it and detail it. And it is important, and it's not, and I, as I studied this this week and considered it, 
It's not going pop psychology, Dr. Dobson talking about your sin and unpacking it, right? But that's what James does, is he does unpack it and he gets to the root of it. And it's important for us to understand, not just in this circumstance of quarreling and fighting, but in our own lives as we struggle with our own sins, be it similar to this one or this one itself or other things, it is important for us to understand that at times we need to unpack those sins and understand what they are, that we might even better repent from them and place ourselves in situations where we're not tempted to that. And so by understanding that, we're able to do so. Back in James chapter 4, I'll start in 1b. He says, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, your pleasures that wage war in your members. This word for pleasures in the Greek, right? It's always used negatively in the New Testament. It's referring to your sinful desires that are waging war in your body. Not members as in members of the church. By members, he's talking about your body. Your sinful desires in your body. The source of the sin is, is you. It's the sin in you. Specifically in this case, of the quarreling and the fighting, he says what? He says it's the lust. It's the envy, the covetousness, this lust, setting your mind and your desire on things that you don't have, things that you shouldn't have, letting that lead you to murder, right? This envy, this covetousness, right? Wanting what someone else has to the extent that you think they shouldn't have it, but you should have it. Right? Leading to what? Fighting and quarreling. This is in part the source of these symptoms. In verse 3, James further addresses these wants, further unpacks, if you will, the source of this sin, the sin itself. He says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, your sinful desires. See, when we ask, and this is important to understand. Now, now real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a, a, a shameful plug in here. On our Wednesday night Bible study, we have entered into this whole big section on prayer, okay? So I'm not going to get all into that this morning, but for a further in-depth study on what we're talking about right here, right now, and in asking and in praying, come to our Wednesday night study. Um, When we ask, we can do so according to our needs and desires and not sin, but... When we do so, 
we have to do so according to God's will for his glory. Now understand, this isn't a formula for getting what you want. And I think a bulk of evangelical Christianity has turned this into a formula of getting what they want. This is what I want to pray for. So all I have to do at the end of my prayer is I have to say, right, God, I ask this according to your will and in Jesus' name, which is kind of the same thing, okay? And as long as I say that, I'm covered, right? I'm in. But that's, that's the mindset. That's the extent that we've taken it to. It's not a formula. Just by saying the words, ask according to your will, and in Jesus' name, one, doesn't mean that you're asking it according to God's will and in Jesus' name. It doesn't guarantee that your prayer will be answered. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to see this illustrated through Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 39. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. Actually, I'm going to start reading in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to grieve to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, it was Jesus' desire to see this cup, to see the pouring of God's wrath on him, to see it pass from him. That was in his humanity, his desire, his want. But yet there was a greater desire and a greater want that Jesus had in and through this and through this cup that was being poured out on him. And it was this. He says then, yet not as I will, but as you will. So though it was Christ's and his humanity desire to see this cup of wrath passed over him, right? He actually had a greater desire and that greater desire was for God's will to be done. Whether or not that included the cup of wrath passing over him or whether or not it included the, the cup of wrath, which we know it was fully poured out on him, that was his greatest, greater desire was that God's will in and through this would be accomplished. It wasn't a formula, right? Jesus wasn't saying that just to get what he wanted, right? He truly desired God's will and God's will to be accomplished in and through him, though he made his want, his desire known to God, right? First John. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will. Now, again, this isn't throwing that tagline in there and covering your bases. This is truly desiring, truly asking according to God's will, just as Jesus asked, Father, this is what I desire. God, this is what I think we need and want in our life. But, Lord, we submit it fully and completely to your will. We desire and seek your will in this, through this, above all our desires and wants. That's what, that's what um, John is saying here. Again, he says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask according to his will, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. God's will will be done. And when we pray for God's will to be done, we can be confident that God's will will be done. Though it might not line up with our desires unless our desires is for his will to be done. James is addressing here sinful wants, sinful desires, wants according to man's will and according or for man's glory. He says again, you do not have because you do not ask, right? You do, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You're not asking, truly desiring God's will. You're asking, truly desiring your will. You're not asking for God's glory. You are asking for your glory. And again, that doesn't mean that we can't bring our needs and wants and desires to him but it has to be truly submitted to his will. He says, further, if God gave you what you wanted, right, so that you may, sorry, um, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, further, if God gave you what you wanted, you wouldn't even use it for his glory, but you would use it to satisfy your own hedonistic desires. You see, the only motive James is saying in your asking is you. As James is, is exposing the sin here, digging into the source, we're seeing, if you will, these greater levels of sin. And I'm not, I'm not I mean, all sin is sin before God. And even the most mundane sin that we could ever imagine is enough to condemn the entire world entire world to hell. But categorically, anyway, I'm, I'm saying lesser and greater sins, right? One leading to the next, leading to the next, okay? It isn't that um, simply there's a... Sorry. <clears throat> it isn't that simply there is a praying with the wrong motives. They are praying with the wrong motives here. So we see these, this, this sin kind of pattern and level develop as he impacts the source. We've got the symptoms, the, the fighting and the quarreling and that sin. Okay? The lusting and the envying murder the heart, right? And that sin, right? So he brings it to another level, right? A praying with the wrong motives and that sin. But it's not just that they're praying with the wrong motives. It's that, that when they are praying, when we 
do that, we ultimately elevate ourselves above God. When we pray according to our will and not God's will, we elevate our will above His will. So He unwraps this sin, the source, even more. Verse 4, James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James isn't adding this, uh, the sin of sexual adultery here, right? It should cause most of us to think back to Israel and the spiritual adultery that they consistently committed right, before God. It should really make us think of the many times that we have done the same thing. Right. He's using this, this idea of adultery metaphorically to refer to spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And this, of course, is sin. So he unwraps this even a further level. In fact, this is the greatest level that James addresses here of their sin. See, this unfaithfulness is out of control. Right? resulting in all sorts of other sins. And let's think about it in context of James chapter 1 all the way up to this point in the letter. In chapter 1, there's this hearing and there's this not doing, right? Ultimately, a result, spiritual unfaithfulness to God. In chapter 2, there's this partiality that he addresses, right? Favoring of the haves, a disdain for the have-nots. Again, right? A sin in and of itself, showing partiality, yes. But as he unpacks that sin, right? As he peels off this layer and that layer, we get down to even a deeper root cause and a deeper root sin. And it's this, spiritual unfaithfulness to God. Chapter 3, failing to control the tongue. He addresses using it to bless God and to curse man. Again, sin and of itself, but yet there is this greater sin, if you will, taking place, resulting in these manifestations. And that, again, is spiritual unfaithfulness to God. We visit David for a minute. King David, that is, for a minute, if you will. Second Samuel 11, we're not going not gonna to read it. I'm just going to kind of briefly... Mention it, and you can write that down and go home and, and read it later. Manifestation, the symptoms of David's sin, right? Murder, right? Adultery, right? Kind of the, the first outward symptoms. Well, he had Uriah killed. He committed physical adultery with Bathsheba. We can take it down to another level. Well, he didn't go to battle and lead like he should have because he was staying home with a lustful, envious, covetous attitude. Again, similar to what James is talking about here. So was that, was that his, his greatest sin, if you will? No. It was his spiritual unfaithfulness to God, right? 
that led from that to the lust, to the envy, to the adultery, to the murder, followed by the year after that of running or attempting to run and hide from God. So in James, we see the same type of picture, right? A lesser, if you will, the lesser sin, the fighting, the quarreling, right? And on top of that, the lusting and the envying. And then on top of that, the asking with the wrong motives. But it is the self-love, right? To the greater, the unfaithfulness to God. So you see, it is important that we unpack this is sin that's going on. Not that we would just simply say, hey, you're fighting, you're quarreling, I repent, I turn, big deal, we're done, okay, it's over. No, there's a greater problem. And it's important even as we confront the sins in our lives and the symptoms of the sins in our lives, it's important that we attempt, not in our own strength, but with God's strength, to get to the, the root of those sins. See, if, if, if King David had been filling his heart, if you will, with the things of God. He would have been on the battlefield leading his men instead of staying home, lusting and coveting, right? If the church that James is addressing, the individuals that were hearing this, that knew that James was talking to them in the first century, if they would have been filling their hearts with the things of God, they wouldn't have been asking with the wrong motives, right? Putting themselves above their, their own will, above God's will, right? They wouldn't have been lusting after the things that others have, lusting after the things of the world, right? Coveting the things that other have, ha- others have, right? They wouldn't have been fighting and quarreling like they were. He further goes on in chapter 4. And he says in verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, friendship with the world is hostility or enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, these are just two huge truths right here. He who wants to be a friend with the world is hostile to God. Friend of the world is an enemy of God. See this lusting, this coveting, this this self-love that's proclaiming your will above God's will, right? This, This spiritual unfaithfulness towards God, right? This proclaims, this reflects this is evidence of a pursuit anyway of friendship with the world. And a friend of the world is an enemy of God. First John. Two fifteen through seventeen. It says do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, again, we're not talking about the physical earth here, right? We're talking about the world's systems, right? The sinful desires and wants of the world, society, people, humanity as a whole, okay? He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all 
that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives for ever. See, ultimately, loving the world, wanting what the world wants, living like the world is incompatible with being a true follower of Jesus Christ. So who is James speaking to at this point? Non-believers in the congregation? Yes. True believers in the congregation? Yes. How about false converts in the congregation? Those who he's been addressing, as well as true believers throughout this entire letter, right? Those who proclaim faith and yet don't possess faith. Yes. Yes. Who is he addressing? Yes. He's addressing everyone. See, the purpose in this passage right here, friendship with the world is hostility toward God, and a friend of the world is an enemy of God, should cause everyone, the non-believer, the true believer, the false convert, should cause everyone, should force each one of us here today to examine ourselves, to examine our own heart, our own attitude, our own actions, our own motives, our own desires, and our own Once, our prayer life. For the purpose of what? Well, that's what James leads into in verses 5 and 6 and ultimately commands and demonstrates verses 7 through 10. In verse 5 and 6, he makes his transition into the solution from this sin. He says in chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 of James, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, verse 5, I do want to say this. Verse 5 is a difficult verse to interpret. There is, in fact, no clear consensus on what it means. As I studied various translations, as I examined various... um, commentaries, there, there was no clear consensus among Bible-believing evangelicals as to exactly what verse 5 is saying. I'm going to give you two kind of potentials, tell you what I think, and we'll move on to verse 6. Now, some translate verse 5 to mean that the spirit which God made to dwell within us lusts with envy. If you, if you read that from the NIV, it pretty much exactly says that. Other translations, the ESV is most closely aligned with this. Other translations um, uh, uh, mean or say it to mean that God yearns jealously for the Holy Spirit which dwells within us, right? That is that he yearns to give us a greater grace. Now, I probably lean towards the first interpretation, and that is that the Spirit which God made to dwell in us, right, lusts with envy. I think it fits this context. I also think the other translation fits this context. Ultimately, don't know. I'm not going to say emphatically. Not going to get hung up on it because it's not crucial to the truth of what, is James, of what James is saying. I wanted to mention it just for the very reason that when you go home and you examine what I've said today against what Scripture says and you get to this verse and you go, 
I'm not sure exactly what it says. I'm not sure if this translation's right or that translation's right, and I definitely don't know if Nate's right. It doesn't matter to the truth of what James is, is getting to. Someday in heaven, it'll all be made clear, right? God wanted it to be clear for us right here, right now, it would be, right? But in verse 6, James does make the truth of this passage clear, okay? In pointing us to the solution for our sin. He says, God, what opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. To oppose means to rage and battle against. That's bad news. That's frightening to think of. But there's good news. There is a promise. And the promise is this. The promise is that, but God gives grace to the humble. We'll wait till the train passes. Now, I think I'll revisit verse 5 real quick. I do believe, and again, verse 5 is the tricky translation, okay? Some, and again, there is no consensus among commentators, okay, among scholars, and I am not a scholar or a commentator, but there is no consensus among what is being referenced. Some say that, that God's yearning earnestly for the Holy Spirit which dwells among you, and it's His desire to give a greater grace through this lust, through this envy, through your sin, and other translations refer that spirit to man's nature, right? And man's propensity to, to sin, his sinful nature that, that yearns for lust and envy and ultimately sin, okay? Again, there's no consensus on that. And ultimately, I don't think it matters. I mean, it, 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 if it mattered, I think there would be a consensus on it. The truth is the point of this passage isn't lost um, because of verse 5 and because of a lack of, of clear agreement or consensus on what verse 5 means. But verse 6, okay, and the point is in verse 6. And what James does is he says that God opposes the proud against, rages in battle against, right? It's bad news. It's a bad position to be in. But God, and this is the good news, right? He gives grace to the humble. There is grace available to the humble. Now, this is a promise, but ultimately what James is doing here, okay, is he's pointing us to the solution. He's calling us to turn from pride and humbly submit to God's authority. To turn from pride, to turn from sin is to repent, right? And to humbly submit to God's authority. James in verse 6 here, in pointing us to the solution, is calling us, calling the church, calling non-believers, calling believers to repent. That is the solution. That's the solution for the, the circumstances that the, the church that James is addressing here, the believers fighting and quarreling and, and lusting and envying and, and murdering with their hatred and their anger and putting themselves above God and, and committing a spiritual adultery. That is the solution for that sin. It's to repent. It's to turn from it and humbly submit to God. That is a solution for all sin, right? Not just these particular sins, but all sin that believers struggle with and deal with and non-believers is to repent, to turn from that sin and to turn to God. And in verses seven 
through 10, James paints this incredible picture by commanding it. So he just doesn't give us some ideas or suggestions. You should do this. He actually commands it, but in commanding it through verses 7 through 10, he paints this picture of what repentance looks like. We talk about repenting, right? What does it mean to repent, right? We turn from sin, and in turning from sin, we turn to Christ, right? We lay aside our sin, our love of sin, and we turn to Christ in faith. But what does that, what does that practically look like, right? Verses 7 and 10, we see what repentance practically looks like. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. He says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. First, he says in verse 7a, this is a command. This is what repentance looks like. He says, submit therefore to God. This is the idea of a soldier lining up under the authority of his commander. There is for that soldier no view of autonomy, no view of self. They don't belong to themselves anymore. They belong to the commander, period. It is a willing and a conscious submission. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus says, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Real quick, turn over to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 24. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus requires total abandonment from self and total commitment to him for anyone to follow him. That is, submit, therefore, to God. You are not yours. You are his at his disposal completely, entirely for whatever he wills. If it's to give you a long life, if it's to give you a short life, anything in between, you are not yours You are his to do as he pleases. Submit, therefore, to God. That's what repentance looks like. In 7b, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is, take a stand against Satan. Now, not in some some kooky, charismatic, like I'm I'm a devil buster and I'm going to go around and constantly, you know, throw out my good juju everywhere and, 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 and ward Satan off. That's not what he's talking about, Right? Earlier, he talked about loving the world, being a friend of the world, and taking a stand against Satan. You are rejecting not only Satan, but what he stands for, and rejecting that which is his, which is the world, and the world's ways, and what the world loves, and what the world wants, and everything that's ultimately opposed to God. You can't submit, therefore, to God if you're not willing to resist Satan and all that he stands for, and all that is his, right, and flee I'm sorry, and he will flee from you, but you cannot submit to God without resisting Satan and all that is his. In verse 8, he says, draw near 
to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that is to pursue an intimate, personal, loving relationship with God. And we do that spending time with him and his word and in prayer, characterized in your life, in my life, in one's life, if you will, by a longing desire to be with God. What is the greatest desire of your life? To be with God. That's what repentance looks like. A longing for God. Verse B. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands. That is an outward cleaning up of. Should give us thought back or imagery to part of the priestly duties, if you will, before they went in, was to cleanse their hands, right? Representing this outward cleanup, if you will, of our life, our actions. We know that the outward is to what? Be a reflection of the inward. And that's where he says to purify your heart. That's an inward clean up, if you will, of the sin and the garbage and the filth in our life. So repentance. And, and for one who has truly repented, there will be this. And we understand, believers, it's a process. You're not saved and then perfect and it's done and you're, 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 you're good, right? But it's a process. But for the one who has repented, for the one who is repenting, there's this cleaning up of the, the inward filth and garbage and sin and junk in their life and a purifying of it. And that's going to also reflect in an outward cleanup in their life as well. In verse 9, he says, Be miserable and mourn. And weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Just be broken over, over your sin. True repentance is characterized by a brokenness over sin, a weeping over sin. When is the last time that you've weeped over your sin? that you've been broken over your sin. A hatred for your sin. Not because of the consequences it produces in our lives. I think a lot of times that's what happens, right? We're broken over our sin. Oh, I hate my sin. Why do I hate my sin? Well, because of what it produced in my life. No, we should hate our sin because of what it did to Christ. We should hate our sin because as believers, every time we sin, we trample underfoot again, the blood of Christ. True repentance is characterized by a brokenness, a hatred, a weeping, a mourning over sin. Let's remember King David fell into this pattern, right? These multiple, again, sins that snowballed out of control to these outward manifestations or these symptoms caused by this spiritual unfaithfulness in his life. After, after all of this had happened, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he had killed Uriah for I, somewhere in the neighborhood of a year, he again attempted to run and to hide from God. And yet in Psalm 
32 and 51, we see David's repentance. We see his absolute brokenness over his sin. Let's just look at 51. Psalm 51, we're just going to look at verses 14 through 17. So do this, though. Write down 2 Samuel 11. When you go home this week and you have time, read 2 Samuel 11, which is David, Bathsheba, Uriah, this, this, this sin in his life. And then Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and, and, and read David's response to his sin. But in 51, verse 14 and 17. David, he cries out and he says, Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David cries out in repentance, absolutely broken and mourning over his sin. Verse 10 of James chapter 4. It says, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This command to humble yourself before the Lord is ultimately a summary of the previous commands James just gave us, this picture of repentance. It's to make yourself low before God. And the promise is that he will exalt you, not because of you, not because of your repentance, not because of your doing, but he will exalt you because of the one who is ultimately exalted because of Christ. For when he exalts you, he doesn't see you, but he sees his son in your place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 